Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, August 29th, 2022. On the show today, news and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of Disneyland's Pirate Ship Restaurant. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that this country doesn't play enough ABBA, and it shows. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len, and ABBA gets its name from the initials of the first name of all the members of the group. So that's Agnetha Fetzkew, Bjorn Oldview Hughes, Betty Anderson, and Annie Freelingstad. And just in case you're wondering, Len, if you, me, Nancy, and Laurel ever formed a band, it would be called Linda. <laughs> it's a, a type of Swedish berry, so not entirely unrelated, Jim. No, no, there we go. <laughs> Coincidentally, also the noise my car makes on a very cold morning when it won't start. But. <laughs> so what you're saying is we have cross-cultural appeal. We do, we do. And speaking of different cultures, Jim, before we start, I'd like to thank you and Christina for doing a great job on last week's show while I was on vacation. Uh, and as we get started with today's show, I'd like to tell all of y'all a little bit of my trip and share an important travel tip. As many of you know, uh, one of my travel goals is to visit every country in Epcot's World Showcase. And not only that, but if it's possible to see the things in the real world that are referenced in World Showcase. So I've been to Chichen Itza in Mexico to see the Mayan ruins on which El Rio del Tiempo was modeled. And by the way, it's very accurate. I've been inside the 800-year-old Steve Church in Oslo that you see outside of the Norway Pavilion. And I've been to Italy to see the birthplace of Palladian architecture as well. So last week, Lowell and I went to Canada. Now, Jim lives much closer to Canada than me. Jim can make a wrong turn on the way to Target and end up in Montreal, right, Jim? It's more of, I need to find a Tim Hortons. I'm jonesing for donuts and coffee, but please go on. <laughs> so Canada for me is more of a hike. So I have to plan a little bit more. And the thing that I've really, really wanted to see in Canada, and you guys will, will totally relate to this, was a hotel that's been featured in every version of Epcot's Canada film when it comes to the Canadian Rockies part. And that's the Fairmont Banff Springs. So if you recall the Canada films, there's a shot where a helicopter is following a whitewater river upstream into the mountains, and you get this beautiful image of a massive old hotel. It looks like a castle just set down in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by a forest in the mountains. And that's where we stayed. So the Fairmont Banff Springs was originally built by the Canadian Pacific Railway in the likeness of a Scottish castle. It opened in 1888 and has been updated and expanded in the meantime. Service is excellent, the beds are wonderful, and there's a million things to do. Uh, Banff is a little bit of a hike to get to. You can fly into Calgary, which is about an hour away, uh, or you can do what Laurel and I did and take the train from Vancouver. And let me tell you, it is everything you would expect it to be. If you like the outdoors, it does not get better than Banff, and hotels do not get much better than the Fairmont Banff Springs. And that leads me, Jim, to today's travel tip. Jim, you know that Canada is a multicultural and multilingual country. They speak both English and French, right? Mm -hmm. And so my tip is that as Americans, when you travel to Canada, even learning just a couple of key phrases in French will have a dramatic effect on your trip. I don't know if I've ever told the story, but I've failed exactly three academic classes in my lifetime. English, French, and gym. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm automatically at a disadvantage in Canada. But you know, I studied on the internet mm -hmm. a little bit, Jim, before I left. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you what a difference it made. You would not believe the looks I got in Montreal when I, mm -hmm. as an obvious American, was able to say things as simple as bonjour avec fromage <laughs> to them. And in return, Jim, these grateful French Canadians spoke to me in English 
and very, very slowly. I think they might have been intimidated, uh, Jim. Some of them even drew pictures for me to answer questions I'd asked. So all I'm saying is that learning a little bit of the language of the country you're going to will result in a dramatically different experience, and that is today's top travel tip. So you failed English, French, and gym. Uh, coincidentally, I actually failed French gym. <laughs> the final exam involved getting out of an invisible box. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Monsieur, the rope course. <laughs> Les dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There All we right. go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Doofenshmirtz, P. Kennanen and Lep, and longtime subscribers Glamis Boy Six, Bob Pfeffer, and Bridget Swart. Jim, these are the Disney scientists who are using Professor Wayne Zielinski's shrinking ray on guests using Disney's bus system as a way to increase capacity and cut down on weights. They said that besides lowering the seats to accommodate much, much smaller guests, the only other big change they have to make is to lower the air conditioning speed in a project called Guest Popsicle. True story. This explains a great deal about the squealing noise I heard recently while sitting down on a Disney bus. I, uh, I have such exactly. regrets, Len. Oh, dear. So, All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, uh, people have been spotted riding the Tron Lightcycle Run at the Magic Kingdom. Have you seen this? I saw that somebody had grabbed footage of it in operation, but people, actual people on this. Actual people. Yeah, so that's wow. uh, that's good. So, so to put that in perspective, ride testing started on Guardians of the Galaxy in December of 2020, and that opened about six months later in May 2022. So the thing I think we want to try and figure out here is based on the fact that they're doing people testing now, when will Tron Lightcycle open? Mm-hmm. And because this is an outdoor coaster, we have a little bit more visibility, haha, into mm. testing, assuming they're not conducting the bulk of testing at night, which mm. they might not be for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. So as you know, Jim, any new ride has to go through this initial feasibility testing. Then it goes through a test and adjust phase, then a burn-in phase where they run it continuously to simulate actual park operations and mm. actually track downtime. Mm-hmm. Okay. That last phase is conducted by park ops when it hands off. Mm and is formally tracked by Park Ops. So for Guardians of the Galaxy, um, that started around the second week of March 2022, mm-hmm. or about 12 weeks before the official open, opening of Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Tron hasn't been handed over to Park Ops yet. And, I mean, Guardians was an all-new ride concept. Tron, however, is similar to what they have in Shanghai, mm-hmm. so maybe they can reduce that 12 weeks a bit. But even if handoff to Park Ops happened today... Mm-hmm. A similar schedule puts us around the middle of November. So that is absolutely, I think, the earliest time at which the attraction could open. I, we've been saying, Jim, December 1st for a while now. I still think that's ballpark. Okay. Thank you. We're correct. Yeah. And we're going to know more once Disney's public relations team sends out to media its save-the-date emails. And that Thank hasn't you. happened yet either. So mm-hmm. we have a ways to go. But I still think we're good for 2022. Okay. I think you've zeroed it. You and I have been hearing... We want this for holiday 2022 yeah. for the better part of a year. I think that makes sense. Also, Jim, uh, a new version of the Magic Kingdom's Enchantment Fireworks show debuted last week. This has additional clips at the beginning that feature Walt himself, as well as Roy O. Disney. And the show's intro segment now closes with Mickey Mouse saying, you are the magic. You know, Jim, Disney's been doing after-hours testing at the Magic Kingdom of various segments of Happily Ever After both fireworks and audio for weeks now. Mm -hmm. So I have to believe this is not the end of changes for enchantment. 
10 months after the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. <laughs> it was a great time to introduce new things. <laughs> yeah, I could just, the fact that now we're going to put Walt and Roy into this thing. I mean, I applaud them for doing it, but frankly, this should have been there since day one. Yeah, especially Roy. I mean, Walt didn't see the Magic Kingdom. Roy no. opened yeah. the park. Yeah, but it's a two-minute segment that's been added to Enchantment, which is still a projection show where, frankly, mm -hmm. people don't know where to look during the projection yeah. show. And in fact, there's the clip of Walt in front of the chart. But the way the thing lines up, Walt's face is in the 50, you know. Oh, it looks like he's wearing uh, Elton John glasses no, from, that's uh, exactly. from, from the movie Tommy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> If Walt could sing Pinball Wizard there in the go. middle, yeah, this would be perfect. You know, I'm still standing. <laughs> That's a show I would pay to see, Jim. There we go. <laughs> All right. Uh, other news. Disney's updated its park reservation system last week, according to our friends over at WDW Magic. Here are the changes. So guests with an existing Disney Park Pass reservation can now modify the date and park without canceling it and make a new reservation. Let me say that has got to be the number one most important thing. I cannot tell you how many times... I have made a reservation for one park and then ended up having to go to another park first. Mm -hmm. And in the old system, Jim, you would actually have to go to the other park, tap in, and then leave, assuming you could park hop after 2 o'clock. So if you were, let's say you had made a reservation for Animal Kingdom, mm -hmm. uh, and you really wanted to go to the Magic Kingdom, you know, plans change, mm -hmm. people decide different things, you would still have to go to the Animal Kingdom, tap in, turn around and walk out, and then drive over to the Magic Kingdom. Under the old system. Now you don't have to do that, and thank God. Okay. And how long did it take to institute this change? A couple of years. That's couple fine. Of, yeah. Oh. Somebody once told me, Jim, the, uh, the wheels of justice uh, grind slowly, but they grind finely. So, you know, uh, and maybe it's the same thing with Disney IT. Who knows? Okay. Second thing, uh, all guests, regardless of ticket type, now use the same park pass reservation system. Some of you will know that under the old system, there were multiple back-end systems being used and you ended up with an inconsistent experience. And this is actually true for me. I have an annual pass, mm -hmm. but when I, under the old system, when I would tap annual pass for my reservation, mm -hmm. I would get an error. I had to tap the button that said theme park tickets. Even though I didn't actually have a ticket, I had an annual pass, which <laughs> drove me insane, right? Every single day. There, every, I'm sure every graphic designer and every user experience person who ever dealt with that died a little inside mm -hmm. every time it happened. Two other things that are, don't affect many guests, but mm -hmm. uh, now you can have park reservations for up to 30 guests instead of 12. Mm -hmm. That's fine. And then uh, park pass reservations are now associated with a ticket, not a guest. And this allows you to have park pass reservations for different tickets, such as single day tickets and an annual pass. Again, I don't think this affects too, too many people. Mm -hmm. It's nice to say. Okay, fair enough. That's good. All mm -hmm. right. So first two things I think are really important. The second two are sort of edge cases, but it's good to see that they're working on them. So I'm excited. Okay. All right, let's do, Jim, some listener questions. Here's one from Rebecca saying, thank you for all of the geeky data and interesting history. I'm planning our family's first trip to the world in October of 2022. I'm curious about your take on whether Fantasmic will be open by then. If so, which nights do you predict it'll be performed? I've tentatively planned park reservations, but we'll adjust based on your advice. And thanks so much for my dedicated Canadian listener. Again. They're lovely people, and they make <laughs> great donuts and coffee. I'm just saying that they have their priorities in order. And, you know, Rebecca uh, did not put this into French, but I believe her last sentence, if we were to translate it to French, would be uh, Merci Hamon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. We're just we're just trying to elevate the discourse. I podcast. Just okay. All right. So. I don't know where you've heard Jim, but, uh, and I know this is only about five weeks away at this point, but I really think Fantasmic is coming back around October 1st. Every couple of days I dip into the Disney audition site to see yes. what's going on hiring wise. Where are we hiring dancers and characters? Because we're going to need to people the show when it finally gets up and running. So Right. And when, um, when we knew that Lion King was coming back because we saw the additions for Tumble Monkeys. There we go. Okay. So what have you seen? Well, again, it's the, the standard tail end of summer. Kids are going back. So we need other adults to perform characters. But again, the key thing for when Fantasmic comes back, the story is the Pocahontas Color of the Wind scene has been cut for a brand new sequence for this show. So it's hard to determine when they're hiring for Fantasmic because, again, they have this new sequence in it. You think that new sequence will be in Kanto? Oh, that's some ingenious low-hanging fruit if they went for it. Mm. Also, uh, Jennifer had a similar question. Uh, she writes in and says, uh, we're visiting Walt Disney World the first week of November 2022. What are the chances that Fantasmic will be back? And showing that by that, by that time. Hmm. Also, are there any indications they'll be offering preferred seating with certain restaurant reservations. All right, so we addressed the first part of the question earlier. Mm-hmm. But another listener wrote in with something that's interesting mm-hmm. for Jennifer, and here's what it is. About, this is about the, uh, the restaurant reservations. Okay. Dave sends in an email with a possible explanation as to why it's difficult to get Space 220 reservations. Mm-hmm. So Dave writes in and says, there's apparently this subculture of people who snag all the Disney dining reservations they can, then trade them on Facebook for either other reservations or just to be loved. There are Facebook groups just for this process, as if it already wasn't hard enough to no. tour the parks. So Dave, uh, Jim, in the show notes, I sent you a, uh, a screen cap that Dave sent, and it's mm. a Facebook post called Disney Dining Reservation Exchange Drop Slash Ad. It is for uh, Space 220. This person is looking for an October 15th reservation and currently holds 14 different Space 220 reservations. Oh. On two days for a total of 65 people that they're willing to trade in response. So a couple of things here. Number one, this is why we can't have nice things. Mm-hmm. Number two, Jim, does the name Howie mean I anything to you in this context? I knew you were going to do it. Didn't we kill this back in, I want to say 2003 with the whole, you have to use a credit card for a reservation at the what right. is it, at Cinderella's Royal Table or the other Prince's Dining. Yeah. So for our listeners, uh, our new listeners, 15, 20 years ago, when Cinderella's Royal Table was an extremely difficult reservation to get, there was this group of people, and Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, they were known collectively as Howie's Angels. They were. And what they, they would were. do is every morning grab as many Cinderella's Royal Table dining reservations as they could mm-hmm. and then dole them out to their friends or people who requested them. Yeah. And Disney, in response, instituted the credit card requirement mm-hmm. to prevent that from happening. And this is another case of them doing this. Now, I think the issue here is you can still cancel these reservations within mm-hmm. 24 hours without any sort of penalty. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does Disney get around this, though? How does Disney prevent this? They've got to be aware of this. I don't know. Given the issues that they've been having at Space 220, I mean, uh, largely... Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to get in. And you and I have talked about this. It's mm-hmm. really difficult to get in, and we were trying to figure out why, because mm-hmm. the reviews, frankly, haven't been that great. No, that's it so exactly. why is it so hard to get into? Yeah. <laughs> and now it's this. Oh, my God. I dearly hope there is somebody on 
the food service side of Disney that hears this news and goes to have a conversation with the folks in reservations. The simple way to clean this up is to just go with the whole $10 deposit on a credit card. What they put in place for Cinderella's right. Royal Table and the other Princess Dining experiences, and this all went away. But you're right, we, we can't have nice things because I'm gaming the system. So these reservations are at 1155, 1215, 1220, 1225, 425, 815, 830 on one day. Then 1205, 1205 again, 1225, 425, 515, 730, and 430. It's like, come on. But think about this. Some joker like this is game in the system? No. People need to not be selfish here. They, they need to see the bigger picture. And by doing this, you're not just helping your pals on Facebook. You're also potentially taking money out of a, out the pocket of a very hard-earning, uh, working uh, cast member. And, you know, come on. That's not fair. Yeah. I mean, one day Disney's going to do something like, for new restaurants, they're just going to charge you $25 per person per, per reservation mm -hmm. or whatever, $10. And it's going to be in response to this. Yeah. And we're yeah. going to look back and say, you know, this is this is the reason why. Yeah. I really don't know how they solve this other than actually charging for yeah. reservations. But you know, this might be the case where we, we get what we deserve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, tough, 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 tough. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully Disney gets this, uh, yes. gets this result. Yes, please. Somebody pass this along to the right person. I think enough people listen. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's open. Here's open. All right, folks. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us what kind of food was served at Disneyland's Pirate Ship Restaurant, and why. We'll be right back. Do you feel like you need a bit more magic in your life? Why not give Storybook Destinations a try? Storybook Destinations is an authorized Disney vacation planner, and all other counselors who work for this full-service travel agency have received extensive training when it comes to the Disney theme parks, resorts, cruises, vacation packages, and more. These travel professionals have years of experience when it comes to planning customized Disney vacations, which is why you can always book with confidence when it's the Storybook Destination team that's helping you find the vacation of your dreams. Best of all, they offer their booking and planning services at no cost to you. So if you're once again ready to travel, why not learn more about what Storybook Destination has to offer by visiting their website, www.storybookdestinations.com. Jim, you have titled this uh, Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant, and I thought to myself, we need some background music here from Jessica Simpson. <laughs> Who she's a doll. Don't get me wrong. I love Jessica Simpson. I think she's great. But she did unfortunately one time say that uh, she thought tuna, which is nicknamed Chicken of the Sea, was actually chicken. I think she might have been joking there. Not entirely sure. But anyway, well, I, this, that's what this topic reminded me of. I, well, as it should, because it, this story does take us a little bit into the history of the Van Camp Seafood Company. It started in 1914 uh, down in San Diego, some 95 miles away from Disneyland. I, and in fact, the whole chicken of the sea thing didn't come about till 1930. This is when the company specialized in catching albacore tuna and particularly canning the white albacore which tastes like chicken and so that was the thing it was a, a particularly white form of, of tuna it had a, a light flavor and so eh, it's chicken of the sea go can it 
Anyway, our story starts with Disneyland uh, 1954. You know, Walt is scrambling to get folks to sponsor attractions at his park. A Disney representative reaches out to the Van Camp family and goes, Hey, we're doing the family pun park up in Anaheim and you're a seafood company. And hey, did you see the movie that we made just last year? Peter Pan. It had mermaids in it. And you have a mermaid on the side of your can. Talk about leveraging the synergy machine, Jim. It turns out the, the, <laughs> the mermaid on the side of the chicken of the sea can actually has a name. Her name is Catalina. She was introduced in 1952 as the company's icon. And for all of you Trekkies out there, if Catalina looks familiar to you, the woman who posed for when they were putting together this icon was Grace Lee Whitney, who played Yeoman Rand on the original Star Trek television series. There's a uh, there's a six degrees of Kevin Bacon somewhere in here that we're going to have to explore. More to the point, in another you show. put a little bacon and a tuna sandwich, Lynn. Oh, oh that's good stuff. Mm. You know, oh. I know what I'm having for lunch now. There mm. we go. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So the, the folks are, hey, Peter Pan had mermaids in it. You know, it's like, of course, they're hoping that the Van Camp family didn't actually see Peter Pan because if you remember the scene with the mermaids, the mermaids actually try to drown Wendy at this point in Peter Pan. It was like Catalina evidently hung out with a tough crowd. <laughs> Who knew that tuna was such a uh, such a contentious thing? All right, go ahead. Okay, so anyway, finally, uh, it, it takes a couple of months, but the Van Camp family and Disney, they come to terms and it's like, okay, yeah, we could get behind this idea. And what Disney has proposed is they're going to build a pirate ship that's going to be an attraction and a restaurant. And it's going to be 79 feet long. It's 80 feet tall. Now, mind you, 60 feet of that are the three masts that come out of the deck. And the gimmick that the Van Camps really get behind is that this restaurant will only sell items that are made with the Van Camps seafood products. So you walked into the restaurant, looked up at the menu board, and you could choose between tuna sandwich, tuna burger, tuna pie, which is served in a pastry shell, tuna boat salad, a tuna clipper salad, which, as I understand it, is a slightly bigger boat, so slightly bigger salad, a shrimp cocktail, because uh, Vandekamp Seafood also sold canned shrimp, and then finally, Len, fruit tart with whipped cream, which I'm assuming had a little tuna in it. <laughs> the tuna and fruit tart, of course, Jim. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, if, if this was in, in, if you said, you know, dot, 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 in aspic, I mean, that is like the quintessential <laughs> 1950s dessert. There's jello involved somewhere, right? Somewhere. <laughs> For me, it, it's that Monty Python sketch about, you know, well, it's got some spam in it. Spam, 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 spam. Baked beans and spam. I was thinking of the, uh, I was thinking of the Forrest Gump uh, shrimp uh, scene. <laughs> oh, right. no, that, oh, that would have been killer too. I should have gone right. that way. Anyway, Frank and Gilbert love this idea. But the problem is it's taken so long to land on an idea that they like. And again, the Jolly Roger, Captain Hook's pirate ship being built full size at Disneyland. It's now May of 1955, Len. Oof. And so they have to rush to build this thing. So it's 10 weeks before... Ten weeks before opening, <laughs> they haven't built the ship yet? Len, I, I have looked at the blueprints for this thing. They are literally dated May 6th, 1955. Get 2.45 p.m. <laughs> there we go. 
and go. You know, so exactly. So they wind up starting construction of this backstage at Disneyland between Main Street and Tomorrowland. In fact, it's just outside of the doors of the park's lumber mill, which after the park is completed, they then turn into the opera house. We've referenced this before, but this is the first time I've li- I've heard you link mm-hmm. the lumber mill to a specific piece of mm-hmm. in park theming. All right, so yeah. go ahead. All right. They build the ship itself out of Douglas fir. They accent the ship with pieces of genuine Honduran mahogany, which they have shipped in for this project. I've actually worked with Honduran mahogany before. I believe there was either a temporary or permanent ban on (laughs) importing it from uh, from Honduras. But I actually um, I built a a pencil post bed one time. My dad used to order shop out of Honduran mahogany. Let me tell you, it is the most beautiful wood to work with. I mean, it's difficult to work with, but the end result, just amazing. It's incredibly thick, isn't it? I mean, you know, the it's, just... it's very dense. Yeah. The, yeah. um, okay. and, and the interesting thing is for like for a pencil post bed to do it entirely out of mahogany, like the sheer strength of mahogany mm-hmm. is many tons. Like this bed will support, you could put a VW bug on it and it would be absolutely fine. But the, uh, the, in, the thing I had to do was make the headboard out of like the flame pattern, hundred mahogany, you know, like Mahogany has like uh, you know a lot of very coarse grain, but mm-hmm. if you get it right, if you cut it right, there's a flame pattern and the heart of the wood. So you want that to be the thing that is uh, most visible. Anyway, before this becomes a Yankee workshop. All right. <laughs> anyway, the the thing that really sealed the deal here for the Van Camps was that they wanted Catalina to be represented on the ship. So what they wound up doing is Chris Mueller, who is a very skilled sculptor. In fact, he he did all of the original animals for the Jungle Cruise. Uh, He also did the Gill Man for the Creature from the Back Lagoon for Universal Pictures. So um, incredibly skilled guy when it comes to things that were in water. So what Chris did is on the front of the ship, the figurehead, he made a six-foot-tall version of Catalina the Mermaid. And then on the back of the ship, uh, on the stern, there was this elaborate piece that he sculpted where it basically recreated in three dimensions the image that was on the uh, chicken of the sea can. You had Catalina seated on her throne made of shells, and mm. that was seated atop of a sea turtle. But it was this wonderful, beautiful sculpted piece at the, the back of the ship. Oh, so the Van Camp people have to be thrilled with this. Walt was hoping, but here's the thing. We jump ahead now to the evening of July 16th, 1955. They have just finished building the boat. In fact, they were building it backstage between Main Street and Tomorrowland. So what they had to do to get it into place in the center of Fantasyland is they had to hire a crane to lift it over the still being built Tomorrowland building. So if you remember that moment in Peter Pan with the Jolly Roger flew through the sky, <laughs> it did. Same, same here. Yeah, same it really here. did. <laughs> you know, people driving down, uh, you know, the road in Anaheim are like, I got to stop drinking uh, two martinis at lunch. There we go. There we go. <laughs> this day drinking is not working out. So it's the night before the ABC Dateline Disneyland special runs. And Walt's there in the park and realizes, oh, crap. We have not painted the Chicken of the Sea pirate ship restaurant yet. It's just Oof. bare wood. You talk about an all-hands-on-deck emergency. Oh, this is, this is yeah. literally and figuratively that. 
<laughs> That's it, exactly. Walt's fear is that Frank and Gilbert, when they show up next day as invited guests, when they see the definished lumber and that's what's yeah. on television, it's like, this is going to happen. So Walt's kind of ingenious solution is they only paint the side that faces the cameras. Get me the, the people I need to paint this boat. And again, this is where the camera is positioned. This is the only <laughs> view that people are going to get. The I'll camera tell- does not move That's from right. this point. That's it, you know, so paint this side. And then there are literally dozens of Disney Studios employees who that day, it's like, okay, come with me. Your job is when we say the camera's on, you run to the railing and you wave to the camera, put your hands up and go, yay! So nobody sees that, A, we haven't rigged the boat, we haven't propped the boat, we have, you know, but it works. Yeah. No, it's fine. It's fine. So, so this is a uh, the the ship is uh, Walt's version of a Potemkin village. This is a great story. <laughs> anyway, it works like a charm during the the TV special that airs on ABC. But the restaurant itself doesn't start serving guests till August 29th, nineteen fifty five. Some six weeks later. Okay, so we're the and the and so I guess Walt is placating the Van Camp. Mm-hmm family at this point, like, trust me, it'll be ready to any day. Any, anyone who's gone through a construction project oh, knows this, right? No, that's it exactly. And, uh, you know, the Van Camp family is thrilled once the restaurant actually opens up because it, it's hugely popular. And, and again, becomes one of those, ooh, we got to go check that out because it's not just the food that's being served there. The fact you can climb up on deck and you're on Captain Hook's boat. And there was a, there was a, a trend in the 50s mm. in Southern California towards this experiential dining, right? Very much like, so. Very much. Yeah. So. Okay. So this 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 was both of the moment and also a great idea in and of itself. There was only so much room for people to dine around the boat, and people over time expressed, oh, you know, that, that I got a sandwich, but I had to walk someplace else to go eat it. And Walt heard this, and so you have to remember, understand that, that Walt, at least for the first five years or so that Disney was in operation couldn't necessarily call all the shots himself because he had financial partners. He had Western Publishing. He also had ABC Paramount, which owned a third of the park. Anyway, Walt buys out ABC Paramount in June of 1960 for $7.5 million. For one-third of Disneyland. For one-third of Disneyland. I would pay $7.5 million for one-third of Disneyland. Well, the thing that kind of stuck in Walt and Roy's craw is that ABC got that return on its investment of just... $500,000. $500,000. Okay. But in the long run. Oh, no, 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 no <laughs> doubt. But it was just the notion of you gave us $500,000 and yeah, you helped us set us up with a bank loan, but we had to pay you 7.5 15 times that. Yeah. In five years. It's a good rate of return. That's a great return. But anyway, one of the very first thing that Walt does when he alone is calling the shots in his theme park is he decides we're going to expand the dining area at the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant. So this comes directly from the October-November 1960 issue of the Disney Lander, which was the employee newsletter at that time. Headline reads, Pirate Ship to have new and exotic setting. By the time you read this, you'll be aware that the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship is closed for an extensive rehab. It is scheduled to reopen about December 15th. When it comes back, it will be isolated by craggy cliffs covered with lush tropical foliage. This area will be Pirate Cove, where the the park's well-known pirate ship will reside at anchor. And the WED designers have included in their plans the familiar landmark of Skull Rock, and there will be three different waterfalls cascading from rocky heights. Oh, so they did uh, outdoor seating? They did. They did. Uh, But themed. 
Okay. Yeah. But again, and, and this became one of uh, Disneyland's classic photo spots at that point. Now, mind you, it took a little longer to get Pirate Cove and Skull Rock built than they initially projected. It didn't actually open until December 23rd of 1960. But right out of the box, it's like, I want to dine here and I want to get my picture taken here. And so, you know, every seat that they built, every table that they added was filled. And of course, that thrills Frank and Gilbert Van Camp, who decide just two years later when their seven-year contract with Disneyland comes up with the renewal. It's like, oh, we're doing another seven years. However, just a year later, in 1963, Frank and Gilbert decide to s- sell their fish canning company to Rolson Perina. So seven years after 62, 1969, when it, the sponsorship deal comes up for renewal, Rolson Perina's like, no, we don't want to do that. This is one of our many divisions of the company. Now that we're our subsidiary, Chicken of the Sea, and frankly, we can spend our advertising dollars better than operating a restaurant at Disneyland. So, wow. Okay. Name of the restaurant gets changed from Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant to just plain old Captain Hook's Galley. And once the contract lapses, they actually have to make physical changes to the Catalina the Mermaid figurehead at the front right, of the ship. Right, 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 because it's probably copyrighted. There or we go. Sure. Okay. There we go. Mm-hmm. So now, jump ahead to fall of 1981, where work is beginning on Disneyland's new Fantasyland project. And the idea here is by the summer of 1983, all new versions of Disneyland's classic dark rides, like Snow White's Scary Adventure and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, will reopen with new state-of-the-art effects. State-of-the-art for that time, we're talking fiber optics and digital sound. But among the changes that are in the works for the site of the park is that the ship that houses Captain Hook's galley is once again going to be lifted by a crane line. Only this time it's going to be lifted 100 feet or so to the east. So this full-size pirate ship will then become the finale of Disneyland's storybook land. Oh, smart. Yeah. Okay. Well, that ride starts off with you being swallowed by Monstro, a full-size whale. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so the notion is, you know, well, we really need to bookend that experience. We, we start with a full-size whale, so wouldn't it be cool if after you're floated by all these miniatures of from classic Disney stories, you suddenly come around the band and, whoa, here's, here's the Jolly Roger. And the plan was they were going to hire a crane and move it so it's now sitting at the edge of Small World Plaza. And then they would ex- expand the load-unload area so there was now a new lagoon space. So when you came out, the boat would float by. Oh, nice. Was this an actual boat that floated? Well, no. Again, it was a a building, sort of the predecessor of the Empress Lily. Okay. So um, basically a mobile home that turned into a restaurant and you can move it. Yeah. But again, in much the same way as they did with the Empress Lily, they built the building and then they dug out around the foundation to create space for the water to flow in. So it's like, it's a boat. Well, it's a building that's pretending to be a boat. Anyway, phase one of New Fantasyland would open for the summer of 1982. And then phase two would open summer of 83. This is uh, largely the Alice in Wonderland dark ride, the Mad Teacups, which had been moved over to be closer to the Alice dark ride, and a brand new Mad Hatter hat shop that was done in the south. So it was kind of an Alice mini land in, in the area. But... Uh, 
the plan was that once that work was done, the final touch for this area would be to build directly behind where the uh, Jolly Roger had been moved to uh, a recreation of Skull Rock. And, and the beauty of this is this would then hide where the storybook land canal boat ride boats were, would go into their maintenance barn. That you know, This would hide where they, uh, they went every night. The plan here was that we're going to move the boat, but first thing we're going to do is take those beautiful plaster pieces that mm. Chris Mueller had made. Our Catalina figurehead at the front of the boat and the wonderful Catalina on her throne thing on the bow. We're going to carefully pry those off and we're going to take them backstage and restore them. And mm. as it turned out, they got that far, but they were trundling the backstage with a forklift and nobody to this day knows how it happens or why, but... The two plaster pieces suddenly fall off of the forklift and shatter into a million pieces. So they're gone. They're broken. And then to add insult to injury, the team that has to go over and set up the construction crane and we're going to get the straps in place and we're going to lift up the old pirate ship restaurant and move it over to the east side of the uh, small world canal boat. And it's like, and remember, we, we talked not to, all that long ago about how this thing was made out of Douglas fir and with genuine accents of, of Honduran mahogany. mahogany. Tasty, tasty mahogany. I know where you're going with this. <sighs> termites. They went over and looked close and it's like, oh my God, this thing's infested with termites. And it's like the moment that we go to lift it, it's just going to fold in on it itself like an accordion. So in a move that nobody liked... What they have to do is just they abandoned the whole idea. They called in a demolition team and the in place, they pulled down the entire Jolly Roger and Ah. then pulled down Skull, a rock and Pirate Cove behind it. And this is where Disneyland's Dumbo the Flying Elephant ride eventually got moved to. Because I remember, I remember looking at old versions, you know, opening day uh, films, and I'm like, oh my god, that's amazing! It just, it was one of the park's icons. It was, it was, and so many of that second gen generation of Imagineers grew up going to the park. So, for example, when it, they started designing. Disneyland Paris, and particularly the Adventure Isle section of that park, it's like, okay, we lost it at Disneyland, but it's going to France. So even today, Len, you can go to Adventure Isle, and there, right next to the Swiss Family Treehouse, in the water out out in front of it, is the Jolly Roger, seated to next to a very large version of Skull Rock, and in fact. Tony Baxter told this amazing story about the crazy attention to detail. They had finished sculpting Skull Rock, and Tony was standing in front of it and looked at the ship and looked at the, and it's like, you got the teeth wrong. (laughs) It literally made them knock the skull's teeth out because it's like, it doesn't look like the thing from the movie. And it's just sort of like, so they they had to go back in and re-sculpt the teeth on Skull Rock. Because it, the kids who grew up going to Disneyland yeah. and remembered eating their tuna sandwich while looking out at Skull Rock, it's like, no, it's got to look like this. So if you're a Disneyland completist and you really, really, really want to replicate that Chicken of the Sea pirate ship restaurant experience, there are several places online where you can find the actual recipe 
for uh, the tuna burger, which involves lots of chopped celery, I'm just saying. I mean, uh, chopped celery is a, a component of a good tuna salad. Mm-hmm. So That it is. That it is. I mean, me personally, though, again, I just want to find out exactly how much tuna there was in that fruit tart with whipped cream. I mean, I just... <laughs> That's something that the archives need to work on. Too, there we right go. There, there, right there. There, there, there. I'll make the call later today, Lynn. So. <laughs> it's fantastic. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please help support our show and Jimmy Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, and you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We've just done a recent Bandcamp exclusive on what's happening at Universal's Epic Adventure Park. On next week's show... Jim tells us how Michael Ovitz, then president of the Walt Disney Company, tried to save the Magic Kingdom's 20,000 leagues under the sea. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. Produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be covering the entirety of the breakthrough 1973 album pronounced Leonard Skinnerd, including an epic two-hour guitar solo in the middle of Freebird, which, Jim, I think is actually the radio edit, not the full version. At the 2022 Bull Weevil Festival on Saturday, October 15th, 2022, on North Main Street in beautiful downtown Enterprise, Alabama. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.